look, tech will do everything for you in the future. Pretty much everything that it does today and everything you think it can't do, it will do. But I don't know if it will make you a better human. And therefore, if you focus on values and focus on making the world more exciting, but also more livable, and I mean it in a not just an environmental way or an ecological way, but broader than that, societally, I think you will be a better leader because you can basically harness and have technology do everything that humans had to do before, but only humans can be better humans. So if you basically use technology to get less busy and therefore focus on being a better human, I think the world will be a better place, even if you're a busy leader. Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the P&G Alumni Podcast. I'm Raman Segal, Recovering Marketer. And I'm Rajiv Sethyal, the Funny Indian. Raman and I both got our start at P&G, the Procter & Gamble company, where we had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at P&G. In this series, through conversations with fellow P&G alums, we hope to go deeper with the leaders you already know, but want to know more about. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee. On today's show, we're talking to Vivek Sundar, the CEO of QMath, which has the mission of making the world's children great at math and creating invincible problem solvers who will go on to solve humanity's biggest problems. It was great to learn from someone who's defined his career by living at the intersection of business and tech. After all, prior to QMath, Vivek was the COO of Swiggy, the Bangalore-based online food ordering and delivery platform where he led its business operations, scaling to 500 cities in just 18 months. And of course, he is a PNG alum, spending 20 years in developing, developed, and hybrid markets. He is a graduate of the Indian Institute of Management, Calcutta, and he speaks six languages, three of which are non-Indian. His hobby, photography, has been featured everywhere from Nat Geo to the BBC. We hope you enjoy our conversation with Vivek Sundar. Vivek, thank you so much for coming on the pod. It's a pleasure, Rajiv. I'm glad it's you and not Raman. Uh, wow. Okay. Maybe we'll edit that. I don't know. Maybe we'll leave it. This is good. This is good for my own self-esteem. So look, many folks already know your professional story, but what a lot of folks want to know is, who were you before you got your professional start? Can you tell us a story from your youth? Yeah. So my dad was in the army and he was a doctor, so which meant that we were basically traveling every two years. We were in a different state. And if you know the country, which is a continent called India, every time you go to a new state, it's a different language. It's a different culture, it's a different food, and it's sort of take Europe and sort of multiply it by 100 times in terms of diversity. So as a young kid, I had to basically press restart on friends, press restart on languages. And in fact, I needed an interpreter for the first three, four months in every two years of your life. I mean, imagine what it does to a young kid in terms of just soaking it in and also the need to learn different languages and connect with people. So that, I think, is a defining childhood story for me, 14 schools in 12 years of formal education. Wow. And I thought my parents moved around a lot. See, both my grandpa on both sides were in the Indian army. So they moved all over, even though we're Punjabi, they lived all over the South, all over the North, everywhere. So your story is even more amazing, maybe than theirs, which is a rarity. <laughs> very, very cool. So let me ask you a little bit more about your early life. So you grew up mostly then, you spent all of that time in India. Is that right? Yes, that's right. All over India. Okay. It was all over India. Okay, that's great. Then let me also ask you, if you flash forward to today, 
How are you similar to that younger version of yourself and how are you different? I think having that level of change makes you innately curious, right? Because you're jolted with new stuff and to survive, you've got to learn the new environment. And I think that that in a consumer-facing business, and I've always been in consumer-facing businesses, it's an enduring sort of thread of similarity because even when I joined P&G and for 20 years, I've done six countries to have lived in and maybe 20 countries to have visited and work. So it's crazy. It does get crazy. And I do think that I'm similar in that I'm always trying to learn new things. So even when we used to do sales visits in PNG and I would go to some random town, I mean, most people would just fly in, fly out and sort of spend time with the team. I would always say, look, I'm going to spend the night here. You've got to show me something that is unique about this place. And you just learn something new about the people, the culture, maybe something that even affects you or helps you do a better business. So I think that has stood the test of time. I've always been curious and I think will stay so. That's amazing. I love that. I think that's a great way to get to know, yes, not only the place, but also the people. What was the first way that you made money? So this is an interesting one. I mean, if I was an American, I would have basically talked about delivering papers and stuff like that. We are lucky in India that middle-class Indians don't need to work because their parents pamper them, really. I mean, you probably know that being a bicultural global guy. But I had the situation where there was a cause or charitable cause that existed. And I was in maybe a 10-year-old. And what happened then was my parents said, that's fine. We're not going to give you money for the charitable cause. You go earn it. Whatever you earn, you can give to the charitable cause. And so I ended up essentially going and asking all my parents' friends, because back in those days, we didn't get pocket money. I had to go and ask the parents. And I said, look, I'd love for you to contribute to this charity, but I don't know what you want me to do. So give me odd jobs that I will do. And I just need to basically get X rupees worth of charitable donation to get going. So I think I remember doing 35 different chores It's not like I just mowed the lawn and that was it, right? It was 35 different random things (laughs) to be able to get money from 35 different people. It wasn't a very large sum of money. I mean, they gave literally chump change. But when you add it all up, it was a meaningful sum for a young boy. And I do remember very proudly taking all that money to my parents and say, there you go. 35 of your friends ended up giving me money. And my parents looked at me funnily. They said, I hope you didn't ask them for it. I said, no, no, no. I gave them a deal. Give me a task. And in return, you can donate to this charity. So that was my first money-making process. That is quite entrepreneurial. You don't hear that very often. And it probably broadened your skills. And that is a wild thing. I wonder if you even remember what was the craziest thing you did for the least amount of money. But that's a long time ago. If I think hard, something might come about. But I do remember (laughs) reading up about the tasks that Achilles was given. And I was like, yeah, okay, got it. I did 3x of that. That's amazing. Wow. What a great spirit you had even back then. Do you use your education? Can you tell us a little bit about your educational background and whether or not you use your degrees? The answer is I use it, but in a way that's different from what conventionally people would use. I was good at math. So I ended up doing engineering and I actually ended up using a lot of my engineering. It's funny, I joined PNG in sales or CBD as it's called these days. It's actually back to being called sales. And one of the things I remember is the first award I got, the so-called CEO award was actually not for sales. I mean, I had a good sales year, but it was actually for designing the first big data system for all our salespeople. When we started in India, everybody was using paper and pencil and pen to sort of, you know, do invoicing because it was a very traditional market. So I remember digitizing all of that and crunching all the data on the weekends and basically going and saying, look, this is the way we can use data because we don't have this kind of data back in headquarters. 
And I remember the systematization of that data, which was actually previously not available, and then sharing it with the 100-odd salespeople that we had in India actually gave me the first so-called Global CEO Award, which was amazing, right? I mean, a sales guy getting an award from IT was odd. But I remember thinking to myself, okay, that's a good place where my engineering got used. But obviously, as I work for a tech-first company, this is quite useful. I mean, it always comes back to me, the basic principles of algorithm and problem-solving come back to me. And I think engineering is a, rather than think of it as a degree, I think if you think about it as a training of the mind in terms of how to solve problems, I think it's an enduring sort of skill and you can use it in pretty much everything. We had to use it today when we were sorting out the technology for this pod. It exercised, I believe, quite a bit of patience as we were trying to sort out, is it Zencaster? Is it Zoom? Is it the laptop? Is it the Plantronics? Is it the connection? Right? We, we had, a lot of it was patience, but some of it was just logically figuring out the flowchart of if it's if this, then that, right? Yeah, exactly right. So if this, then that is such a classic. It's a complete computer classic. It's funny in comedy, it's very similar too, because what they generally tell you in improv class is if this is true, what else is true, right? So you have to make a lot of assumptions very quickly because you establish the who, what, where. But then if you're in Jamba Juice and somebody has a hammer and you kind of go, okay, well, if this person has a hammer, then maybe the person also has a screwdriver. And and since you're at Jamba Juice, maybe there's vodka because there's a screwdriver and orange juice. I made that up. But hey, the point being that you very, very quickly go, if this is true, what else is true? So that's really interesting that there's some parallels even between something so right and left brain. How did you discover what you're good at along the way, right? Because you seem to be good at a number of things, especially since you took on so many tasks as a young kid to make money. But what would you say that it really comes down to that, wow, this is something I'm really good at. And how did you figure that out? Yeah, so I would say it's sort of a combination of intense curiosity right now what's bugging me is what's on the photo frame behind you i mean you can say that's a pretty random thing can you please focus on the podcast but you have a photo frame behind you i'm curious to know is that your in-laws when they were younger or is it you and your wife i can't see it from a distance but i'm sort of curious so i'm intensely curious and i think for a consumer facing company it, it helps to be curious it helps to sort of say I'm interested in learning more about you and the you can be a problem, you can be a people or a set of people. So that's one. I think the second one is in connecting the dots because mere curiosity is only going to give you data points or bits of pieces. Connecting those dots to form a meaningful pattern is something which I'm, I think, over time gotten better at. And I think as a result, to be able to solve problems that seem a little intractable are the three. And I think that those are quite sort of universal skills to have, be it selling soap, which is what PNG is about, or delivering food, which is what I did in Swiggy, or it's teaching literally hundreds of thousands of kids math around the world, which is what my company QMAT does these days. It's just a super useful skill to have in pretty much any company. I think it's literally company agnostic set of skills. Yeah, yeah, very much so. That's amazing. So what was one of your early defining career moments, something that maybe taught you an important lesson or something you're particularly proud of, something kind of early in your career? There's a few. I mean, PNG is such an amazing learning ground that there's a lot. If I were to just think about the first thing that comes to mind, literally, and there's no logic for why this one has come to mind, maybe I can rewind and tell you why it came to mind. But I think it's a case where my boss used to meet me every month because he had a whole region to cover. And so he was visiting each of his reportees in different cities. 
So he would meet me once every month and we would go through the market and understand what's happening and stuff like that. So every month, like clockwork, he would arrive and I would pick him up from the train station and then we would go have breakfast and then the day would start and I would take him to the market, right? It was a standard routine. And I remember one particular day he called me and he says, look, just have a printout of the last three monthly business letters you sent me. So I said, okay. And I went to the, printed it out. And I felt that this may have been because he saw something in my business that he wanted to understand. So I kind of reread it and I said, he's not told me why he wants to do it, but let me read it. Has he figured out a problem with brand tide or has he figured out a problem? I mean, I was trying to figure out which business problem is he trying to ask? So I thought I had all the bases covered. So he says, so we had breakfast and then he laid the three sheets of paper on the table. And then he says, okay, so the one on the left is the letter that you wrote before you went for memo writing training. The one on the right is what you wrote two months after I've sent you to Bombay for memo writing training. Could you tell me how your memo has gotten better after we sent you to Bombay for memo writing? This is the famous PNG one-page memo. You must be familiar with that one, right? The iconic classic. It trains you how to think more than anything else, right? So I looked at it. And obviously, I was not prepared for it. So I kind of figured two or three cosmetic ways in which my memo was better. And he kind of looked at me and he says, look, we spent a boatload of time to put you on a plane and send you to Bombay. And you spent a whole day in learning how to write. If this is the difference that that whole day of training is made, you don't have a very bright career ahead of you. Mm. This is not his first meeting with me. I knew him to be tough but fair. And so when he said that to me, I remember looking at him and what looked like a whole minute. And it left a very deep impression on me. And after that, I have said, if I go for a training and I don't know how I'm going to apply it to my immediate job, I'm not going to go for it. I'm not just not going to just tick the corporate box of corporate training. And by the way, most of these corporate trainings can be quite boring going because everybody's going or whatever, right? Or HR has asked you to go. And since then, I maintained a log of every training I attended pretty much from there till 25 years later. And I also think and reflect upon whether I've used it in a way that has made my business better or not. And I think just that reflection is a lifelong learning. And I think that that's obviously a moment that I remember now, 25 years later. Yes, that clearly made quite an impression upon you. Did you ever figure out what it was, what the difference was from the left memo to the right memo? The honest answer was that the difference wasn't good enough. I was not applying, I mean, I wasn't applying the learnings onto the letter. The training was training and work was work and the two were sort of not, I actually told him, After that one minute of silence, I actually said, let me rewrite this last month's letter to you. By the time you get back to Chennai, which is where he was based, I'll send you the letter rewritten. And I have to tell you that second letter was so much better. Literally was so much better. It was so much more efficient in words. It was so much more impactful. And I told myself, I don't know why I wasn't doing it, but it literally is a memory that stood with me for life. It's funny. I went for that same training in Cincinnati and I was pretty cocky about the fact that, look, my English is perfect and I'm a very good writer and I am a very good writer and I was a very good writer then. But I learned so much that day and I had to drop my ego within the first few minutes. The instructor told us so many things that even I didn't know. Even I didn't know. See, the ego is still there. And I remember dropping my ego, checking it out the door, paying attention. And one thing that really stayed with me is when he said, great writing is clear. And what we mean by clear is you don't even see the writing. You see right through the words, right to the concept. Exactly. Well said, well said. I mean, you've said it better than I have. I have understood it, but I think it's perfect. I think great writing is a sign of clear thinking and clear thinking is a sign of leadership. You can inspire other people when you're clear on what the problem is or what the solution is. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, well said. So look, you alluded a little bit to this in terms of, and I appreciate the vulnerability just exposing because this is where we really learn, I believe. We all have successes, big and small, and as best as you can tell, what marks the difference, right? When you succeed versus when you fail, what do you think that Have you been able to pinpoint that? So there's a hobby that I've recently picked up and it's been quite lucrative for me, not in a monetary way, but in terms of making me a better person, which is photography. But I'll tell you, in photography, I think I've spent something like thousand times the amount of time in observing the subjects as I have in clicking the subjects. And even the times Mm. that I've clicked it, I think about, I've got maybe five good shots out of a thousand, which means I've failed 995 times. I mean, that kind of failure (laughs) in corporate world will basically have you sacked. But they're failures, right? They're literally failures. But literally, nobody looks at it as a failure. Your coach, your friends, everybody will look at it and say, yeah, you know what? This could be better with this shot or maybe you should try something else. And I think it's just so natural. It's about the only time in adult life when we've sort of, we keep failing and nobody gives a hoot about it. It's like a kid who keeps trying to ride a bike or walk and falls and nobody gives two hoots about it, right? So I think... The ability to look at failures as merely a learning lesson and nothing more is a fundamental, I think, difference between people who continue to learn and thrive and sort of succeed in conventional or unconventional terms versus those who look at a failure and sort of need some form of help to deal with a failure. Right, right. Yes, well said. We all face these forks in the road and inflection points that may set us on one path versus another. What was one of those first ones for you? Because obviously you actually made the pivot from consumer marketing to fast-moving tech and consumer services. And actually, I think I heard you say once that if something every four to five years at P&G, it changed, right? You had functional mastery and then cross-functional mastery and then general management. I hope I'm getting that right. But tell me a little bit about, A, if I have that right, and then B, the pivots that you've made. Yeah, so that's absolutely right. I think you've captured it well. You must be familiar with cricket. So somebody said, look, if you look at a very daunting score and think of it as a series of T20s, the task becomes much easier. I mean, Virat actually said that Virat Kohli, the, the erstwhile captain of the Indian team. So I think mm-hmm. to come to the point, I mean, if you look at PNG career and say, oh my God, 25 years, 30 years, I can't see myself working in PNG for 25, 30 years, especially for a millennial and a post-millennial. Sure. But if you look at it and say, look, it's an amazing company that every four, five years will give you what is called a discrete incremental skill set, experience and skill set. And after that, you have a fork in the road. You can continue to stay in PNG and go for the next graduation degree, as it were. Or you can basically choose to look outside or do your own thing. I think it just makes the journey far more enjoyable. And it, at the same time, it doesn't make you think that, oh, my God, I'm wedded to this company for life. I mean, I did four such folks in PNG, which is why I did 20 years. And I would not give it up for anything. I think it was fantastic to have those folks in the road and say, this is what I have at PNG. This is what the outside world is giving me. Why don't I just stay for another four-year assignment? And I was thinking of it as four-year degrees, graduation degrees. And I think that's the first thing. And in that sense, one of the big folks in the road for me was when I was offered a chance by my country CEO to go to Thailand. Remember, I never, I told you I studied in India, never sort of went abroad. I wasn't in that sense an international Indian, as it were. And so when somebody said, go to Thailand, now this is a country which has its own language, has its own culture and so on and so forth. And I was the first and I think only foreigner ever to have done what is called a traditional trade or a rural Thailand assignment because nobody speaks English in rural Thailand. I mean, the places the tourists go to, sure, they speak English because it's a wonderful place, but rural Thailand, no home. 
And so I went and for the first three months, I had an interpreter. My direct report was interpreting for me. It's very painful to do business for two months with your direct report interpreting for you. And I said, this is not going to continue. I can't do two years of it here. So I actually had a fantastic Thai teacher, a lovely lady who taught me. It sort of worked out there. But I told myself, this is a problem and it has a solution. And the solution lies with me. I can't blame the world for giving me this assignment. It's a fantastic opportunity to do stuff. So I actually ended up doing every weekend, six hours of classes. And by the end of six months, I was able to deliver a sales speech in Thai. And at the end of one year, I was able to read Thai. So I didn't even need them to interpret for me for the script. Now, I think some of it was just the fact that I might be sort of gifted in languages. But I think a lot of it is just because I said, it's a problem. I mean, if 60 million Thais can read and write Thai, so can I. And so I think that just helped. And the respect that it bought me with the local team is amazing. I mean, more than respect, it bought me a lot of love. They saw the effort I was putting in to get to know them because the way to understand a culture is often through the native language. So I would say that that's a fork in the road where I actually accepted and didn't sort of give up and stayed the course. And after that, my career was completely global. I mean, I spent 10 of my 20 years in PNG outside India and it was a fantastic assignment. Lovely for us professionally, lovely for us as husband and wife and later kids. I wouldn't give it up for anything. I think that fork in the road was a fortunate fork in the road for me. Wow. Yeah, that is one theme you hear from general managers at PNG, which is the global aspect is so, so key. Nobody seems to regret it. I've talked to so many people from Procter & Gamble who always think that that's one of the greatest parts of the company. And like you're saying, there are just so many opportunities. That's really fantastic. How long did it take you to learn Thai? Six months to be able to speak properly and a year to be able to read and write. Wow. And how many hours a day, you think? How many hours was that? Or it's hard to even measure because you were immersed. I think it was six hours on the weekends and two hours in the middle of the week, whichever day was free. So that's 10 hours a week times 52. So 500 hours, 520 hours. Wow. And you're fluent. You can read, write, speak. Fluent. Yeah. I mean, every now and then I would sort of type a birthday greetings to one of my Thai friends on Facebook. So <laughs> that's my silly way of keeping in touch. But yeah, I can still probably manage. I'll obviously be as slow as now as a toddler <laughs> versus the local Thais, but I can still read. I mean, if I go to the country, I can read the forms. I can read the road signs and everything else. That's incredible. Wow. That's really amazing. So that really shows some serious dedication. Look, that's something admirable. And when people that we admire oftentimes are our mentors, leaders that we admire. What was the lesson you've learned from a mentor, either directly or indirectly? And I think you, I've heard you say that there's sort of three types of mentors, right? In your personal life, your professional life, and the kind of accidental mentors that come your way. And let me know if I got that right. And also, what have you learned from any one of them? Yeah, so I'll talk about my country CEO. I mean, he became a mentor much later when he was not in a reporting relationship. And by the way, that's how mentorship actually works best. When there's zero conflict of interest, you're not sort of sitting in their organization directly. Because as much as both of you have noble intentions, your peers don't want to know that you're being mentored by the country CEO. Right, right, right. right. So actually, I just got inspired by him when he was country CEO. And then much later when he had left PNG or had gone to a completely different country is when we actually had a mentoring relationship where it was completely zero problems for any of us and nobody was sort of worried about that anyway. And one of the things I really learned about from him was he was a country CEO. I mean, I would have imagined that his calendar was crazy with so many business meetings and so many business issues to deal with. Of course, with 15 brands, you have to have 15 brand reviews and different geographies and everything else. And so one day, very cheekily, I think I was a new hire, sort of first year in the company, I went and asked his assistant, I said, look, 
you don't need to tell me what specifically in his diary because of course that's going to be confidential but i'd just like to understand a little pattern around how he spends his time so could you just do me a favor and tell me what are the different buckets in which he's spending his time and do it to me over the next 6 months and of course i promised her a gift if she would do that because obviously in the pre digital era that's a fairly detailed piece of work right and you know what i'd forgotten about it and 3 months later i sort of landed up for another business meeting and then i went to say hi to her because she used to sit outside the country ceo's office and she said that assignment you had given me i completed it i'm like what you seriously mm. completed it and she said yes i said i'd love to see it and so for the next half an hour i was seeing essentially anonymized obviously i wasn't seeing the confidential bits but what the ceo was spending time on and what struck me was over 70% of his time was with people over 70% and this was in one on one coaching it was on deciding what are the right assignments for people training motivation counseling out where it needed the whole shebang right every single aspect of good people management both on an individual basis as well as on a group sort of organizational basis and i remember going up to him and saying when we were a couple of drinks down in a party about a week after that i said look i have to tell you i asked your assistant to do this for me and she did and i am just shocked to see that you're spending so much time on people and this meeting for example is one of them obviously he looked at me funnily right because there's this young kid who's come from rural he was posted in rural india and he's coming and basically saying this to him and he says i'm impressed that you tried to find out next time i'll tell my secretary to be a little careful about people like you but it is right good leaders get business done through people and therefore my job is to make sure the right people are in the right position and are trained and motivated and the rest happens he says do you ever see me selling a single case of ariel or tide i said no he said exactly you do the work i make sure you are motivated happy and trained to do the work and that stayed with me for life right yep getting results through others so well said and so well illustrated you obviously as you've told us vivek you speak multiple Indian and non-Indian languages which is even more impressive. Can you share a moment where you experienced or observed maybe professional adversity being treated differently because of your background? Is that something that you experienced? Yeah, so this is one advantage and disadvantage of being sort of one fifth of humanity, right? Everybody knows <laughs> Indians and everybody has an opinion on them. Not all of it is right, but most stereotypes have a logic to it. You as a comedian will know that there is absolute logic in stereotypes right as long as you're not being offensive stereotypes are fun <laughs> exactly so i would say that in most of the countries people have what is called stated or mind made up opinions on indians and it was true when i first went to thailand where they felt that we were sort of over aggressive hard driving managers who didn't care about work life balance and of course it was a deserved reputation but it took a long time for the thai team to get to trust me remember i told you the story of me learning the language and going out shopping with them going out eating with them and all of that it took me that much time to for them to say this guy is as indian as it gets but he cares about us he cares about us enough to spend his weekends learning our language and our culture so i think it sort of worked out well in the end but in the beginning there was that wall that was there between the local thais and me and by the way this was the same story when i got posted as country ceo to africa where in my first town hall would you believe it i've just gotten off a boat got my visa and everything else sorted it's my first town hall as a country ceo and one of the ladies wonderful lady but she asked me the question saying look we have heard that you guys work like crazy and you also make people work like crazy we believe you do all of that are you planning to do that for us here as a country ceo this is literally day one in the job mm. so i laughed and i said would you like me to treat you like the 1 billion africans first of all you're kenyan but would you like me to treat you like the 1 billion africans that there are 
So she said, no, of course not. We're not the same as Nigerians or South Africans or whatever. I said, similarly, there's a billion of us out there. I mean, yes, of course, we have some common traits, but I would appreciate if you would treat me on the merits of what I do and don't do and not on the merits of which passport I happen to have. I had to say that because literally it was a town hall and there was no preparation I could have done for it. I remember six months later, she came in and said I was so wrong because you've never sent us an email on a weekend. You've never sent us an email after Friday. And the only time you've called us is when there's a genuine crisis, a law and order problem or something, which is a health and safety issue or something like that. So I'm so glad I asked that question and I'm glad you sort of didn't duck it and you answered it well, but thank you for that. And she said it six months later when I'd completely forgotten about the incident. But I think it's one of those things where humans are humans. You can't blame them for having biases and prejudices. You just have to assume that that's what it is. I mean, you and I have a bias that a large cat with big teeth is out to eat us. And that's a fairly logical prejudice. But if we find that that cat is friendly, then it's fine. So prejudices are not bad in itself. It's our reaction to that that makes it worse. And in your case, you will shoot that cat, not with a gun like an American would, but with a camera, with a DSLR, because I've read about your photography ways. So that <laughs> Absolutely. I'll tell you an interesting thing. Do you know how close one can get to these big African lions in, let's say, the Maasai Mara or indeed the tiger in India? You can get so close that you can feel their breath. They're like a few feet away. And you sit there and thinking, you know, if this thing just lunges with its paw, it'll kill you. But it doesn't. And so you realize that, look, at the end of the day, a lot of the biases that we have of what things are, are built out on, on, maybe they're built on a grain of truth. But before you know it, the grain of truth is sort of morphed into something random. We've shot with a camera, tigers and lions from a few feet away, never ever felt the fear that one should feel because of all the stereotypes that surround them. Wow, that's great. That's a good way to bring it back to your hobby and then something that works in the workplace as well. But I'm glad that she felt you obviously created an environment where somebody felt comfortable asking that question and kudos to her for asking it and not regretting asking it because it came full circle and it turned out that the stereotype was challenged and good for you. When a manager does send an email on the weekend, do you think that managers should not do that or should they just state to their teams, hey, look, I might work on the weekends, but I don't expect you to answer this till Monday? Yeah, I think the latter. I think, look, I mean, in today's world, I don't want to say that sending an email on the weekend is a crime. Because there's a reason why we are all connected 24-7. I think the important thing is, just like I don't think it's a crime if on a Monday you say, listen, I've got this parent-teacher meeting at school, so I'll come in at 10 a.m. I hope that's okay. I mean, you don't have to take leave if you're coming a couple of hours late, knowing that you're going to make it up. So I think work has become fluid. As long as you're not feeling ashamed of coming at 10 o'clock because you had a parent-teacher meeting in the morning on Monday because you're going to make it up anyway, it's fine to send an email. But as a line manager or a country CEO, I think it's important that you state this and say, look, I happen to get some downtime and think about topics on weekends and I might send an email out. I don't expect you to respond. If I expect you to respond, I will call you. So emails, you don't even have to open it. If I expect you to respond on a weekend, I'll call you and tell you. Emails will keep coming in as the thoughts coming in. You just respond to them when you can, when you're in office. As long as that is set clear, sending an email on the weekend, I don't see why it should be called a crime. I agree with you. In Gmail now, you can schedule your emails. And I tell you, this is so, so, so helpful because you can actually ping the send it on Monday morning or Sunday night or whatever it is. And sometimes someone's emailing me and I don't want to don't want them to feel like I'm desperate responding back within two minutes. I'm like, I'll just set this to set it 47 minutes or something like that. It's been a game changer. I think it's just been an amazing. You're a tech guy and it's been an amazing progress in technology. 
Yep. In the whole work-life balance thing, since we transitioned into that very seamlessly, was there a moment when you took your foot off the gas pedal, right? I mean, you were traveling around, you had kids. I mean, you were married, then you also then you had kids. Was there a moment, in in all honesty, where you felt, okay, you know what? I'm not going to stop, obviously, and you're so successful. So I'm sure there was not a point where you completely stopped. But was there a point where you took your foot off the gas pedal a little bit? Tell you an interesting thing. I had made an observation back in maybe 2000, 2001. And as successful as PNG is in expatriating and sending so many amazing men and women all over the world, one of the observations I had was while people have a wonderful time and families basically become sort of truly global and all of that, it does mean that one spouse has to take some compromises. It could be the man in case of a woman and vice versa. Back then, when there was a lot more men traveling, it was the wives who basically careers took a backseat. And I told myself it's a bit sort of odd to be in a situation where these amazingly educated women are having to take a backseat just because you get posted to Kazakhstan. And if your wife doesn't have the ability to work there, then you're sort of she's stuck for a couple of years. Her career is taking a back turn. So I told myself that, look, when we have kids, I'm going to make sure that I never, ever travel At the same time that my wife is traveling and she has much longer travel than I do. She actually works in a global NGO. And so I actually took for the first year after the kid was born, I said, look, you've just taken time off and you're getting back to work. So why don't I basically just make sure that you travel and I will basically cut my travel in half. And so in that sense, the foot was taken off the gas pedal. I mean, of course, I was still focusing on the business and all of that. But I do remember that time being far more restful. There was a time when I used to be on a plane every Monday morning. And this is before our children were born. And I remember that first year when I kind of traveled maybe one-fifth of what I used to. I mean, versus every Monday morning, that's about, whatever, 50, 60 flights a year. I basically moved it down to about 10 flights a year. And that was sort of a foot off the gas pedal in a way. But I do think it made, made a difference because it allowed my wife to come back at full force back to work. She enjoyed her work and she loved it. So she was happy to get back because I was never traveling when she was traveling. Because if I was traveling when she was traveling with a young baby, it would be her to stay back, right? So, But I, if I said, I'm never going to travel when you have travel, it just allowed her to travel without stressing. What would your children say that they've learned from you? So let me put it this way. I think <laughs> in reality, for example, my son just said today that he thinks he's learned the love of maths from me because he actually loves maths. And now I think he says he's learned it from me, although I've never told him that you must love maths. I guess it's a little more diffusive. He sees me getting excited with maths and that's why he's getting excited. But I think they would say that formally I have taught them focus and discipline. And I think that's something which they would say. They keep mimicking me saying the number of times they would make fun of me saying focus, focus you could see that they've basically picked that up as something that they need to learn from me or they have (laughs) learned from me. And I think for obviously the young kids, they have a lot of fun, but I do think that they know know how to focus when they have to focus. I mean, the number of times our relatively young kids have said, no, you go ahead for the party. I'm going to miss that birthday party because I have an exam. So why don't you just inform my friend's mom that I can't make it because of an exam? I mean, you're surprised, aren't you? Kids are supposed to go to have fun, but one day before a birthday party, If the kid is saying, let me focus on the exam, it's a nice thing. I've never, ever asked them to do that. And it's just, I think, something that they've sort of seen and decided on their own. We would absolutely be fine at this young age for them to go to a birthday party and get messed up on one exam. It's not the end of the world. But I think it's just their own observations and mimicry that's made them do what they do. That's awesome. It's a habit, right? It starts early. And the earlier you can incorporate that, it's like eating habits or anything like that. So that's amazing. You're able to impart that wisdom to them. 
Look, speaking of kids, you think of the future and you think about where we're headed. I mean, we've been living through some particularly crazy and challenging times. You seem to be a very purpose-driven leader. A lot of PNG leaders are, and you seem to embody that trait very well. You've led large organizations across many industries. I mean, what advice would you give to this next generation of leaders? I would say that while we must absolutely be anything but a Luddite, embrace technology because it's going to come and disrupt pretty much everything. I would definitely give that advice. But frankly, to the next generation readers, I don't need to give that advice. They would be even better than me at embracing technology. But I think what I would say to them is, look, tech will do everything for you in the future. Pretty much everything, everything that it does today and everything you think it can't do, it will do. But I don't know if it will make you a better human. And therefore, if you focus on values and focus on making the world more exciting, but also more livable, and I mean it in a not just an environmental way or an ecological way, but broader than that, you know, societal, societally, I think you will be a better leader because you can basically harness and have technology as a slave to do everything that humans had to do before, but only humans can be better humans. And I would be definitely give this advice because there is so much sort of a value degradation that we see around very good people that I think it's just because they're sort of not focusing on it as much and not doing what is called deep thinking on it because everybody's just so busy. And when you're busy, I mean, you know this, there's a reason why people proverbially in New York are less polite than, let's say, in sort of mid-America. It's not because they're different genes or a different culture. It's just because people are busy. And when you're busy, you're not focusing on the people around you and your community and everything else. So if you basically use technology to get less busy and therefore focus on being a better human, I think the world will be a better place, even if you're a busy leader, if that makes sense. Wow, makes a lot of sense. That's great. I think we got our teaser for the episode. That's why I was keeping quiet. I'm like, let me just let the track breathe, let it roll. You were on a good roll. So I could not agree with you more. And that really resonated with me for sure. So let's do some final fun questions, right? Let's just get to know you a little bit more. Although I feel like I have gotten to know you pretty well over the course of this chat. What fact about you surprises people beyond the fact that you speak so many languages? We've covered that. That for sure is the case. But is there something else when people learn about you that they're like, oh, well, I did not know that about Vivek? The fact that I actually can tear up, including in business meetings. And I mean, I don't mean if some business is going down badly. I meant if somebody tells me a people story that is deeply painful. I have basically teared up in office multiple times and it shocks people because I've been in senior leadership positions. Most times I'm strict. I'm sort of, I'm seen as strict and tough and everything else. But the fact when they actually see me tearing up, it does drive a few people bit up the wall saying, it can't be you. You're sort of cracking the whip in the business meeting last week. I said, that was just business. This is people. So I think that part does surprise people. In fact, just three weeks ago, there was a specific case in the office where I was very sad at what had happened and I did choke up and people who were noticing noticed it and they did tell me afterwards that that was tough on you. I said, yeah, I didn't speak because I didn't want to speak more than that. So I think that part surprises people. Yeah, I would say so. That's really cool. Appreciate, again, the vulnerability. This is amazing to get to know the, the person behind the persona. What is your go-to media scape? Is it movies? Is it books? Is it TV? I mean, I would say books, 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 because I used to travel so much that I said, okay, this is time for digital detox. So in the beginning, I was on Kindle, but I switched it off because I said too much screen time. So I actually switched back to Papyrus. So it's books. It's literally just books. 
Yes, I hear you. I don't know if there's a book that you've gifted to a friend or that you've read twice or something that really resonates. It could be fiction, nonfiction, something that stands out to you, and it could be current or even historical. So there's this interesting book called Ikigai. I'm sure you're familiar with the concept of Ikigai, which is you achieve perfect sort of happiness or satisfaction or engagement when you're in the middle of that sort of four Venn diagrams, you know. So there's a book called Ikigai, which is written by these two Spanish authors, but they've obviously spent a lot of time in Japan and researched around the world. And I think the book is a very small, thin book relative to the kind of profundity that's inside it. But I have gifted it to a few people. And I think it's a wonderful book to talk about meaning and purpose and how to basically live a happy and better life, both professionally as well as personally. So I would say that's a book that I've gifted to a lot of people recently. I love hearing about books that I did not know about. So I'm going to have to check that out, maybe pun intended. Look, you tend to give a lot of sports analogies, Vivek. I've listened to some of your interviews. I know you're a big sports guy, big cricket guy. What is the most exciting live sporting event that you've ever seen where you were there in person? So I had the luxury of being posted in London. And I said, look, London has such fantastic sporting venues. So I have to choose on whether it was the time I went to Lords, which is the cricket ground, or the time when I went to Old Trafford, which is a football ground, not American football, the real football. Or mm-hmm. actually, I'll probably choose the time when I went to... Wimbledon because we used to live five minutes away from it and so we went to Wimbledon in center court and this is 2008 I think is this Federer Sampras this is Federer Nadal okay got it I know Sampras Federer I think was like maybe oh no that was a little earlier that must have been oh two oh three yeah okay yeah Sampras I think is a little earlier Nadal and Federer was the later part of the noughties decade yeah so that was a classic I will never forget that because we had fantastic seats And we actually had a load of fun. I'd gone with some work colleagues and I will not forget that moment because it's a theater. It's an absolute theater. I grew up playing tennis, watching tennis. I love tennis. So I'm very, very jealous to hear that. I volunteered at the tennis tournament in Cincinnati for a very long time. My dad still does as a marshal and it's a phenomenal experience. I'm still in touch with a lot of those guys. And speaking of Cincinnati, what was your favorite thing to do when you were in Cincinnati? Have you spent a lot of time there? Well, I used to come every now and then because obviously as you rise in the company, you get to come to the equivalent of Mecca, right? That's your central headquarters, right? <laughs> uh, so yes, we did come. So I've heard people talk about that famous ice cream place and all of that. But let's be honest, if you're living in America, maybe that's a great ice cream place, but there are better ice cream places in Europe. So I would say my favorite thing to do in Cincinnati, given I had so many friends from school, college, newly made friends in PNG, is that I would just go and spend time with so many friends that are in the headquarters and we would just go out for dinners and stuff like that. And those would literally be the most happy moments. And frankly, it wouldn't matter whether we were at a great restaurant or an okay restaurant. It was just meeting friends. And I remember chalking out every night when there was not an official PNG dinner and saying, who am I meeting for dinner or breakfast? And I would go back with a ton of memories because my trips to Cincinnati were usually one a year. So this was almost like a ritual to say, let's meet all these amazing friends that are there. I love to hear that as a native Cincinnatian. I'll have to try more of the ice cream in Europe. When I went to Europe, I've been there several times. I thought, wow, Americans are really getting screwed on the food deal. The food here is so much more fresh. It's so great. I don't know if I agree with the ice cream claim. I have to think about that. Maybe a bias because I'm a Cincinnatian. But one thing that you don't hear a lot about in Paris is the hot chocolate. And people are like, what, really? I'm like, yes, the hot chocolate in Paris is incredible. So I believe you that perhaps the ice cream in Europe is great because the coffee in Australia is amazing. And I did not know that Australia was known for good coffee. Yeah, the gelato in Italy is just something to die for. It's amazing. 
That sounds incredible. So Vivek Sundar, this was a great conversation. I really, really appreciated all of your time and energy. Yeah, but it is fun. It is absolutely fun, but I appreciate it. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. For show notes about this episode, links to things mentioned, or requests for sponsorship, visit pgalums.com slash podcast or email pgalumpod at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the PNG Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former PNGers committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment in communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. That's it for this week. I've been Rajiv Sathyal. And I'm still Raman Segal. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the PG Alumni Podcast. We'll see you next time.